debated and disputed parts of the New Testament. It is not only debated and disputed, uh, one particular part of it is so difficult to understand, there is no general agreement about what it means. So before we read it and before we react to it, uh, we need to do two things. Uh, First of all, we need to pray for God's help for both preacher and hearer in the conviction that this book, all scripture, is God-breathed. And therefore, we live under its authority, which is God's ultimate authority. Uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer, famously said to Erasmus, who was the brilliant Christian humanist, Master Erasmus, the difference between you and me is this. You sit above scripture and judge it. I sit below scripture and let it judge me. Well, I'm with Luther, and I hope you are. So let's just pray first of all and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we're very well aware that our thinking, indeed our whole outlook, is shaped by the society in which we live. We're so easily conformed to this world, and yet we want to be transformed in our minds by your word, your living word. And so as we come to your word this evening, we seek your help. I ask for your help that I might explain your word clearly and faithfully, that we might hear it and both hearer and listener might put it into practice. And so help us and encourage us this evening, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, that was the first and most important thing. Uh, The second thing we uh, need to do before we read it is, before we turn to the passage, is to remind ourselves what exactly we are reading. Uh, Here in the pulpit, I have a very large book. And it's a book I want to recommend if you're a serious Christian. Buy one of these or something like it. This is Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem. It runs to about 1,300 pages. It covers every topic on theology. I hope you're keen on theology. Theology is the study of God. But while it is drawn from the Bible, this is not the Bible. Now the Bible itself, this book, is also a book. But in fact, it is 66 books written by various authors, but with one divine author. If you look in the index, you'll see a list of all the books in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. Now, these 66 books are of different kinds. So if you're reading through the Bible in a year, let's be honest now, how many of you are keeping up with it? Come on, stick your hand up if you're reading through. Yes, it's great. I wouldn't ask you to stick your hand up if you dropped out, but you know, keep going. We're reading through the Bible in a year, and every day, if you've read this today's, or you're reading it tonight before you go to bed. So get to bed in good time so you can do it. Or do it early in the morning, which is even better. Uh, you will have read from Leviticus, which is a book of laws. Psalms, which is a book of hymns. Proverbs, which is a book of wisdom. And Mark, which is a book about the life of Jesus. Now, I'm getting there. Just stay with me. As we come to our reading today we find it is yet another different kind of literature. If you want the technical word that scholars use, different genre. Sounds fancy, but it means just a different sort. What we're going to be studying, and have been studying on Sunday evenings, is a letter. 
It's got the title, although it wasn't written originally with a title. It's got the title, One Timothy. The reason it's called One Timothy, this is not rocket science, by the way, the hard bit comes later, all right, is that it is the first letter, or at least the first letter that we have, because he may have written other ones that we don't have, but it's the first letter written to somebody called Timothy, a young man, and it's written by an older colleague called Paul, who is an apostle or special messenger of Jesus Christ. And in this letter, as we've seen, if you've been with us, and if you haven't been so far, do download the, the messages so far. Try and keep up because it's, it's a continuity, of course. It's, it's one letter. We're breaking up into different parts for the sake of time. Uh, Paul is writing to Timothy for a reason. He's left Timothy in the Greek city of Ephesus as the pastor of the church in Ephesus. Uh, there's only one church there. It's not like Edinburgh, dozens of different ones. You know, there's no different denominations. There's just one church in Ephesus that was founded through the preaching of Paul, who lived there for some time and preached daily there. People came to faith, and he had to leave in rather a hurry. And when he left, he left Timothy to look after the church to be its pastor and teacher. And we've suggested that a good title for this book which is the title for our series, is Building a Healthy Church. He's telling Timothy, this is how you build a healthy church. But as we've seen in the series, there are certain issues and people who are in danger of making Ephesus an unhealthy church. Uh, we saw, first of all, in the opening verses, that in the church, he says, are certain men who are teaching false doctrines who are creating controversy, causing people to wander from the faith. And he says two of them have actually shipwrecked their own faith. Now, as we come to our controversial passage today, we find that Paul is also addressing a problem and problem people in the church in Ephesus. So he writes about how men, and specifically women, for a reason we'll come to in a moment, should behave when the church meets together for public worship. But what I want to say, it's a long way of saying this, is this is not a systematic theology. This is a letter written specifically to a specific situation. And you'll see that because as we come to the passage, only one of the verses is about men in worship and the other seven are about women. So his overriding concern, as we come to the passage, is not about worship and women, when you read it. In actual fact, his overriding concern is the way they worship and the impact this has on the community around them, where they're located in Ephesus. So I've chosen the title, Worship and Witness, for this section of the letter. Now, keep this in mind as we finally turn to the reading itself. So, will you turn in your Bibles? And it really is important this evening, if you're serious about this, to have the Bible in front of you as we go through it together. And I'm going to get down to business and take my coat off, I think, so that's good. I'll get a drink of water, too. 1 Timothy 2. And let me suggest that we begin at verse 1, because it all follows one bit after another. I urge then, first of all, that requests, 
prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm not telling the truth. I'm not lying. And a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. Now he comes back to prayer. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Okay, that's the reading. This is God's word for us. Now, whole books have been written on this part of Scripture. Uh, For example, I could take you to dozens of articles written just on what the meaning of the word have authority means in verse 12. If you are interested and can't sleep at nights, um, I will give you a list afterwards. Um, What I want to do is focus our thinking, and I hope you've come to think and to be challenged in three areas. So I'll just tell you where we're going so you can stay with me, all right? Because the controversial bit comes at the end, all right? Okay, first of all, the priority what is the context? What is, what, is, what is the big issue, the big concern that Paul has in writing these words? Secondly, what is the problem that he is addressing in the church in Ephesus? And thirdly, what is the principle? What, when we've said all this, what lasting principle, if any, and that's the big question, remains What is it that from this will find its way eventually into the systematic theology as being of universal application for all time to us in Charlotte Chapel in the 21st century? Rather than just to Ephesus in about the year 65 AD. So that's where we're going, okay? So first of all, the priority. If you were with us for the last in our series in verses 1 to 7, we saw that Paul encourages Timothy, urges Timothy, commands Timothy as the pastor of this church to pray for kings and those in authority. Why? So that Christians may live a quiet and peaceful life. Now we saw this was not just so they might have a quiet life and enjoy life. No, his purpose in writing this It's because a peaceful society is the best, the most fertile soil in which the seed of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, who is the one and only mediator between God and men, can grow and flourish. This, says Paul, this is a good thing. It pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That's verse 4. 
So we said last time that our prayers for kings and those in authority, as well as for everyone, should be gospel-centered prayers. That's the focus. Now as we come to this section about men and women in worship, it is a continuation of the same theme. For of course, Paul didn't put in verses and chapters when he wrote his letter. He just wrote it as a one Well, we assume he did. It's just a continuous letter. So as we come to this section, we'll see there is the same theme. All right? Gospel priorities in our prayers in verses 1 to 7. And then more broadly in our worship, verses 8 to 15, when we meet together as a local church. Now, this is not quite so obvious as it was in the first section. So uh, stay with me. Let me illustrate. Uh, Notice what he says about gospel priorities in our prayers. We're praying for peace in society. Look at the words. Pray for kings and those in authority, all those in authority, that we may live quiet and peaceful and quiet lives. Now, when Paul comes to the next section, he has the same concern, and he actually even uses the same, it's quite a rare word, in this section. In our worship, he is praying not for peace in society, but for peace in the church meeting when Christians come together in church. Look what he says, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. The same word as he uses about society. Unfortunately, the authorized version of the Bible, this verse was translated as, let the women learn in silence with all subjection. And it's been a verse that's been misused and abused to shut up women in church. But unless the Bible contradicts itself, and Paul contradicts himself, women didn't sit in silence in the churches in New Testament times. For he gives instructions to the church in Corinth and tells them about how women should pray and prophesy. And to pray and prophesy, you can't be silent. It's a speaking activity. So you may ask, if you're still with me, why does he tell women to learn in quietness in 1 Timothy? Because we will see when we come to the problem, the women in Ephesus and in society and then in the church were causing major disruption. They were disturbing the peace in the church. So you may ask, if you're a woman, what about the men? Well, men... We don't get off the hook, for he begins by writing about men. I want men everywhere, verse 8, to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. So why does he write this? Because the men in church were falling out with one another. Maybe they were shaking their fists at one another, and he says, hey guys, this is not on. You should be raising holy hands, which is how Jews prayed in those days, We sometimes do it when we're singing, but they did it when they prayed. They stood and raised holy hands. They come prepared, cleansed hearts and minds to lift their hands to God in prayer. Now, if you have a local church where men are shaking their fists and arguing and disputing, and women are talking at the top of their voices and disrupting to the proceedings, what will be the consequences? They'll be disastrous for the gospel. For who wants to belong to such a community and such a church? You see, we need to remember something. Unlike our churches, the early Christians, when they met together for worship on the Lord's Day, usually early in the morning before work and late in the evening when they'd finished work, they usually met in one of the homes of the wealthier Christians in the community, and they met in an open courtyard in the, or in the atrium as you went in the buildings. You can see archaeological sites of how they were functioned. And this was a totally open area in homes. 
So imagine we are meeting now. Might not be a bad idea, but uh, we're not structured that way in our buildings. The doors were wide open. People would walk in and out as it was going on. They'd be paying attention. They'd see what was happening. And they'd stroll in and just stand there and have a quick look. Oh, that's interesting. Or they might sit down and participate or, or just listen in. Now, Paul's priority is, what effect will this have on their salvation? If they turn up in one of your meetings and you're all shouting and arguing and fighting with one another. If God the Savior wants all men to be saved, come to a knowledge of the truth, then how we conduct ourselves as Christians when we come together is of vital importance. That is God's priority. It is Paul's priority. And it should be our priority. At our last extraordinary church meeting a couple of weeks ago, I was so encouraged to hear report after report that it was one of the best and biggest meetings ever. I hope my non-attendance was not a factor. Um, with, with a real sense of unity. One student member, and she's here, so I won't embarrass her, but she encouraged me by emailing. And she wrote this. I went to the meeting. It was amazing to be part of it. There was such a sense of unity and it was a privilege to be there amongst many people who've been going to Charlotte Chapel for years. I was so pleased to move. Why? Because, friends, it's not always so, is it? My first church meeting as a teenager, about 17 or 18, my local church, I'd been going on Sundays, so I ended up at the church. Two of the men in the church stood up and shouted, shouting and arguing with one another. Nobody said anything. At the end of the meeting, they were there on the Lord's Day the next Sunday. One of them gave thanks for the bread and one of them gave thanks for the wine. I thought, this is ridiculous. Now, some of you young people, I can see you smiling. Some of you older ones aren't smiling because you've been there and you've got, you've, you've got the T-shirt. Well, you don't want the T-shirt, do you, really? Shouldn't be so, friends. How we conduct ourselves in our business, in our church meetings, when we come together in a couple of weeks' time, is vitally important for the cause of the gospel. Charlotte Chapel, let's keep it up. Let's keep praying that the Lord will help us to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit, the bond of peace. Not just because we want peace and quiet, but because we want the gospel to flourish. Because where the unity of the church is present, where people dwell in unity, the psalmist says, there the Lord commands the blessing. Well, that's not the case, it dishonors the gospel of Jesus. And people will never or rarely, apart from the grace and power of God, be saved in such an environment. So that's the priority. I want to put that first, all right, before we get into the controversial bits. It's not about women primarily, or men, it's about witness. Okay, but it is, as you look at the passage in front of us, it is specifically about women, or at least seven of the eight verses are. So let's turn next to the problem. Timothy, of course, was pastor in the church in Ephesus. For many years, it was assumed that the problem in the church in Ephesus was created by women because of the predominant cult in Ephesus. If you know the Bible, you know the book of Acts, chapter 19, you know the story that Ephesus was centered on the worship of the goddess Artemis, or as she's better known by a Roman name, Diana. And it caused enormous problems for Paul and caused a riot in the city. People assumed that that kind of thing was transferred over into the church. However, careful research has shown that women had no great influence or power in Ephesus. 
There are no records, for example, of any women magistrates. And the religion of Artemis Diana was run entirely by men for men's benefit and women were just chattels or even cult prostitutes in the religion. So that really isn't the background that Paul is talking about here. So what was the influence which created this problem in Ephesus? In 2003, New Testament scholar Bruce Winter, an evangelical, wrote a groundbreaking book. I bought it at the time and read it and gave it to my wife to read. Um, It's entitled Roman Wives... Roman Widows. If you want to borrow a copy, you can do. If you want to get a copy. And it's subtitled, The Appearance of New Women and the Pauline Communities, the Churches in the New Testament. Uh, Let me read you something from the blurb. It's important you try and follow this. And this is what he says. In Roman law, you were what you wore. This legal principle became highly significant because beginning in the first century AD, that's when Paul wrote this letter, a new kind of woman emerged across the Roman Empire. A woman whose provocative dress and sometimes promiscuous lifestyle contrasted starkly with the decorum of the traditional married woman. What a woman chose to wear came to identify her as either new or modest. He continues, Augustus, the Roman emperor, legislated against the new woman. Philosophical schools encouraged their followers to avoid embracing her way of life. And as this fascinating book demonstrates for the first time, the presence of the new woman was felt in the early churches, where Christian wives and widows were exhorted to emulate emulate neither her dress code nor her conduct. Now, as you read this, and as you actually look, there's actually a website, you can look at pictures of statues of what women looked like and what they dressed in those days. It's very interesting. Uh, The characteristics of these women comes out very clearly. Notice what they were, and you'll see the relevance to 1 Timothy chapter 2. The characteristics of the new Roman woman were, are we with it, Andy, the next bit, thanks, elaborate hairstyles, expensive jewelry, promiscuous behavior, and the denigration of childbearing and motherhood, along with the promotion of contraception and the practice of abortion, because these women said, you don't want to have babies, it will ruin your figure and spoil your life. Now, as you look at what Paul writes here, it's almost identical description of the kind of things he says that Christian women ought not to be characterized by. And incidentally, as you look at our society, you see there is nothing new under the sun. Now, of course, these are not absolute commands. Looking around here this evening, if you're here in Charlotte Chapel with a wom- as a woman and you happen to have your hair piled on your head or are wearing pearls or gold or clothes from Harvey Nicks, you are not guilty of sin. Rather, what Paul is addressing is what those kind of things signified in his day. Just as he did writing to the church in Corinth about what it meant when a woman had her head unveiled and a man covered his head, which also had religious significance. And I'm not going to go there. You can read the book, but it's the same situation. Uh, Philip Towner in his commentary on 1 Timothy writes, a particular dress code was in effect because with her outer dress, a woman would signal either modesty or dignity or promiscuous availability. And he continues, Paul was faced with cultural developments influencing the behavior of well-to-do Christian women in worship that posed a real risk to the church's public image. And we might add that gave the gospel a bad name. We are back to the gospel priority of the letter. What is it that we signify by what we wear? 
So what should characterize a Christian woman, says Paul? Paul contrasts the characteristics of these new Roman women with the characteristics of what he calls the proper Christian woman. Notice the word translated propriety, which you find right at the beginning in verse 9, and then he repeats it at the end in verse 15. I've summarized it as proper. It covers a range of ideas, sober, modest, self-controlled, discreet, disciplined. And this kind of character, says Paul, is reflected not in outward appearance with clothing and jewelry, but with with outward actions, with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Notice the word profess. Paul is saying, what you profess with your lips should be matched with your lives. We are not saved by good deeds, but we are saved for good deeds, which the Spirit produces in us. It is the sure evidence that we are saved. This applies not only to women, but to men. But these women are addressed because what characterizes them when people see them dressing and behaving in this way is the contradictory message they send out by their dress and behavior. Now, this obviously has a specific message to that culture. But we do need to ask what message men and women, but particularly women in this case, send out by our dress and behavior in our own culture. At the very least... If a woman wears revealing clothes, it is not going to help young men, as Paul tells Timothy in his second letter, to flee youthful lust that war against the soul. And if you wear such clothes in church, what do you think young and older men will be most likely to be doing? Looking or listening to God's word. Back to gospel priorities. Outward appearance and all that enhances it, pleasant and attractive though it may be, and this is no excuse to look like the back of a bus smash, (laughs) is ultimately not of lasting value in God's eyes and the eyes of others. Warren Wisby comments, glamour can be partially applied on the outside, but godliness must come from within. So Paul concludes this section with an emphasis on the lasting values that should characterize women who profess Christ and men, though they're not the focus here, of course, continue in faith, love, and holiness. Faith refers to our vertical relationship with God, love to our relationship with one another, holiness with our relationship to the world that we are set apart to serve and witness for Christ. When our character is contradicted by other things, specifically here dress, we need to stop and ask some serious questions. So, we've looked at the priority of gospel witness and the problem of these women who are coming into the church, wives and widows, and we come to widows later, bringing the gospel into disrepute. But at this point, we need to stop and ask, is that all? That is the question, the big question. So turn thirdly and finally to what I want to call the principle. Does what Paul writes here about the role of men and women in worship contain anything in principle? Let me come back to my systematic theology illustration. Uh, What of this, these verses, needs to go in here into the systematic theology book to be applied to the churches at all times? In short, is Paul's prohibition, look carefully at what he says again, in verses 11 and 12, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission... I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. Is this a local application 
to this specific situation that applies only to the church in Ephesus. It is clear that another characteristic of these women was to try and usurp male roles in public forums by standing and speaking. Is that all that Paul is addressing here? A similar practice that's been carried over into the church at Ephesus and we just live in different times. Or is this prohibition universal? That it applies to all churches? Many people, including an increasing number of evangelicals, but significantly only in the last 40 years, say not. They point out quite rightly that Paul says himself in Galatians 3 that in Christ there is neither male nor female and that there are no distinctions in status before God. If you are a woman, you are of equal value to God as any man. You may be equally gifted to any man. So they say this must mean, therefore, that all roles in church life are open to men and women, including leadership, that of the pastor and teacher in the local church. Others, however, while agreeing that women are equal in status in God's eyes, we're all made in the image of Christ, and if we're Christians, we're redeemed through the blood of Christ, believe that there are differences in role and the specific role of leadership or pastor-teacher in the local church. Now, I do not plan to sit on the fence, as it's a very uncomfortable place to sit anyway, uh, but nail my colors to the mast and say that, notwithstanding the fact that it may be politically incorrect, I believe that the role of leadership, that of pastor-teacher in the local church, is restricted to men, and not all men, as we'll see when we come to chapter 3 and the role of elders. And Colin at least got that one next time. Now, the reason I say this, stay with me, because some of you may be deeply offended at this point. The reason I say this is not because I'm a male chauvinist or hate women, but rather, as we said at the beginning, is that because I and I hope we try to live under, not above God's word, and I believe this does most justice to what the text actually says in front of us, which we believe is God's word. And this is probably the most important passage in the New Testament on this subject. So, as I asked you to do at the beginning, look with me at what is written here, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, judge for yourself. Uh, some people say what Paul is giving here is merely a personal ruling on a specific situation and we've indeed looked at that background and how it is shaped by the background in that specific church situation in Ephesus. <clears throat> but I cannot avoid and we cannot avoid as you look carefully that Paul's prohibition in verses 12 to 14, look carefully, is based not on culture but on creation. He's not arguing from culture but from creation. And he cites God's design. He's quoting, of course, from the creation account in the book of Genesis. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, verse 13. Adam was formed first, then Eve from Adam. Now stop and think about it for a minute. There is no reason why God could not have created male and female, as with other species, at the same time. But he created Adam first indicating his prior role over creation, telling him what to do, <coughs> what was forbidden, giving him the instructions about what he should eat and the tree that was forbidden to him, and giving him the privilege and authority of naming the animals. You don't need to go there, but it's a very significant role. <coughs> then Eve is formed from Adam to be his helper. And together in partnership, they exercise joint rule over the earth. But under God's authority, God, Adam, Eve, helped by God. But having stated God's design, 
Paul then turns to what went wrong. And again, he's referring, of course, to the story of the fall in Genesis 3. Look what he says. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner, verse 14. He says, quite rightly from the account, Eve was deceived and sinned first. She was deceived by the serpent with a tempting promise. Do you know what the promise was, what the tempting was? If you eat this, you'll become like God. You'll get a lot more authority. You'll be up there. She tried to usurp God's authority. Whether this is saying that women are more vulnerable to deception, well, many of us believe more open to spiritual truth than men, is not clear. What, is say, what it is saying is that she sinned first, she was the one deceived. And having <coughs> eaten the forbidden fruit, she then gave to Adam, who also sinned. Then Adam sinned. So you need to ask, what was Adam doing while Eve sinned? The Genesis account indicates, if you read it carefully, that he was standing there doing nothing and saying nothing. It's a point made in another very significant book that I'd, I recommend you read called The Silence of Adam by Dr. Larry Crabb. It is a timely appeal to men to speak and take a lead in their families and churches. Adam was equally guilty before God. And he faced God's judgment. And again, we don't have time to go back into Genesis. You'll see the judgment is given in reverse order. First the serpent is judged. Then Eve. Then Adam, who is given the final sentence of death. But Paul's point seems to me here clearly to be saying that this is what happens when God's creation order of authority is reversed. And that is why he says... I do not permit a woman to teach and have authority over a man. She must be silent, and he speaks about full submission. The word submission does not mean subjugation. It simply is a, actually a term used in the military to refer to rank and the order of doing things. If you're going through a narrow door, two people can't go through together. One needs to go first. And he says, that's the way God has ordered it. We've already seen it is not a blanket ban on women speaking in church, nor is it a blanket ban on women teaching. Not least, older women teaching younger women, Titus 2, verse 3. Even women teaching men in some circumstances. If you read in the book of Acts, when that wonderful man Apollos became a Christian, more mature Christians, Luke tells us Priscilla and Aquila, and notice he puts the woman first, took him aside and taught him more clearly the way of the Lord. So what does Paul mean by his prohibition? What exactly is prohibited? He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. One writer summarizes what this means, and I think this is a good summary. What is excluded, what is the role of men particularly, is teaching and having authority means authoritative, public, doctrinal instruction. Let me repeat those words authoritative, binding on the church, public, in the public forum, doctrinal instruction. It doesn't mean that women can't come alongside you and teach you things. Boy, what I've learned from women, I could probably tell you a lot more than I've learned from men, particularly my wife, but we won't go there either. But, um, it doesn't mean that women don't teach in any circumstances. It means in terms of setting doctrine, in leading the church, in defining truth and error, that is a role that men need to take on board. Now, how that works in every local church will vary according to what your system of church government is. But as we'll see in the next chapter, this is why Paul limits the role of elder to men, whereas I believe the role of deacon 
is open to men and to women. The only difference between the two, the major difference, is the teaching aspect. Uh, that's what we practice in this church. And not because we're against women, but because we are for Scripture. Now, this is a vast subject, and if you want to read more in it, you can do. I believe this is the clearest account of what the Scripture is saying here. In his book, Decisive Issues Facing Christians Today, John Stott writes, All attempts to get rid of Paul's teaching on headship on grounds that it is mistaken, confusing, culture-bound, or culture-specific, must be pronounced unsuccessful. It remains stubbornly there. It is rooted in divine revelation, not human opinion, and in divine creation, not human culture. In essence, therefore, it must be preserved as having permanent and universal authority. So let me say something in conclusion. And let's finish with the final verse, which is the most difficult verse of all, if you think the rest was difficult. But let's return to where we started. What I've been saying is that all of these verses are supremely about gospel witness. About salvation is a key word that you find in 1 Timothy. Faithful saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul says that's the heart of the gospel. The focus is on how people are saved. So the last difficult verse is about being saved. Look at it again. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Now, some Bible translations translate the word saved as safe. And it, it can mean that, that Christian women will be kept safe through childbirth. Uh, but sadly, that is no means always the case, or has been the case in history. And the word saved, I would suggest, is nearly always has a spiritual connotation rather than a physical connotation when you, uh, application and, uh, and uh, reference when you come to 1 Timothy. Uh, some others have tried to get around this. One of them is John Stott, and I rarely disagree with him, but I think he's wrong here. He says it means a woman will be saved through the bearing of the child. That it's a reference to the birth of Christ. And it's through the birth of Christ that women are saved. Uh, that's a neat solution, but it doesn't seem to me what the text is actually saying. It's not the obvious meaning. Salvation, in fact, is usually associated with the death of Christ, not with the birth and incarnation of Christ. And in any case, why would he say it here? Because salvation through Christ, through his birth and death, is not just limited to women. It's men as well. No, we need to read it in context. Having focused on the prohibition, one thing he says that women do not have permission to do, Paul is then affirming positively the one thing which women can do, which men cannot do, which is to give birth to children. Contrary to what these new Roman women were teaching, that bearing children was demeaning and promoting abortion, which was a very dangerous thing in those days, Paul says that Christian women should rejoice in this God-given role and privilege rather than like the new Roman women trying to be like men. Now, it is not a general statement about every woman. It doesn't mean if you've not had the privilege of bearing children that you can't be saved. Obviously not. It is a way, not the way, in which women will be saved. But Paul says, of course, not just by that, but if you continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. But there is one way, the way in which men and women are saved, as Paul has already affirmed in verses 5 and 6. For there is one God, 
and one mediator between God and men, and that's the generic men there, not the other men here. The Greek, there are two words. It means human beings. There is one mediator between God and human beings, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. Now, if that is God's wish, the best environment for that to happen is in a peaceful society, one which reflects God's order, and in a peaceful church, one which reflects God's design. And he's come to on 1 Timothy in these verses. And I conclude with this. Uh, Kent Hughes writes about these verses. This is about gospel and mission. Paul's concern that the church pray and deport itself so that all men would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth was one with the concern that godly men, not women, exercise authority in the church. Paul believed that if the church joyfully lived out the creation order in God's household, the gospel would continue to go out with power. I hope we also believe that and also we'll see that. Let's pray together.